Hey, Deserving Listeners, just me today. I thought I would answer some patron emails. This first email from Anonymous Patron, she writes, My daughter is seven years old now. My daughter is seven years old now and almost always wants me to make choices for her with things like which move she should make in a game or which flavor of ice cream does she want. Simple choices like that. Is this normal or is it just a phase? I try to tell her it's her choice and be patient with an answer from her, maybe weigh the pros and the cons vocally with her, but she insists that I decide for her. She's only with me in the summer, so I don't really know how she is with her dad. I guess I'm concerned since I've been diagnosed with a personality disorder and I worry about her going through the same thing as I did. End of email. Yeah, so it's hard to tell from your email and even as a parent if a child is um, developing dependent personality disorder or otherwise. Um, But let's go over your email here. You're saying your daughter's almost seven and always wants you to make choices for her. And you're trying to, you know, help her make the choices, but she refuses. She's like, no, you must make this choice for me. Uh, You're also telling me that she's only with you in the summer and she's with her dad the rest of the year. And you don't really know how she is with her dad. So that kind of tells me that you're not in frequent communication or at least open communication with him. And you also say that you've been diagnosed with a personality disorder and you're concerned about that. So, again, hard for me to tell over email, but um, could be early dependent personality disorder. Uh, Sometimes people say that you can't diagnose teens or children with personality disorders. And although generally that's something we want to avoid, but that doesn't mean that we can't look at children and teens behavior and wonder if they are developing or have a child or teen version of the personality disorder. You know, we usually make those conceptualizations tentatively because children change over time. But when you see an adult with dependent personality disorder, you will always see uh, proto personality disorder behaviors and schemas early in life. Because of course, the personality disorder, in my opinion, and a lot of experts' opinions, develops in the first five years of your life anyway, usually. So you should see uh, behaviors that will, uh, you know, predate the official adult diagnosis. And, you know, this would always get taught in this, not always, I shouldn't say always. Sometimes this will get taught in this really silly way, like, you know, you can't diagnose children with personality disorders as if it's some... Um, I don't know, dogma or religious rule or something. And uh, although, yeah, we can't really know, but it's not like magically at 18, you suddenly develop personality disorders, right? Anyway, so it could be an early dependent personality disorder. And what we would see in a seven-year-old are the schemas. We would see schemas uh, um, that some, you know, with dependent personality disorder, it's often a, a schema of incompetence, meaning I am desperately incompetent by default and I need someone to tell me what to do or else something really horrible is going to happen. So I have tremendous anxiety when I try to make a decision on my own and I am desperate for someone else to tell me what to do. Just desperate. The, the, it, it's People often will say this is what codependency, that's the wrong label. It's um, not the right usage of that term. And what we're talking about is dependent personality disorder. 
And it's not something that people do by choice. It's something that becomes ingrained in their personality early in life, and they have a hard time letting go of it. And that can manifest at the age of seven of not being able to make any choices. And uh, this can be developed by divorce, by losses in one's life as a child, differences in parenting, maybe schemas of the parents being played out with the child that will manifest independency in the child. And the key is for you as a parent, I don't know uh, what your situation is. You're saying you have a personality disorder. Uh, You're also saying that you're worried that it might affect your child. And regardless of this is one of the effects or not, I hope that you're getting the treatment that you need so that you can heal from your relational traumas that resulted in your personality disorder such that you won't engage in projective identification with your child too much. And you also will be able to not um, see your child through a distorted lens of your past traumas, if that makes sense. Um, Having said that, it could be something else. Uh, When you see a kid seven years old saying, please make decisions for me, it could be a random phase. Children go through random phases, not all children, but some children do. And some children go through some pretty weird phases. I mean, some children will go through like psychopathic phases. It's not frequent, but... You'll hear, and I treated kids like this, that would go through a couple years of having total lack of empathy for other human beings and would be almost sadistic and then emerge a couple years later and they're not like that. And they would look back on that with horror, like, I can't believe how mean I was to people back then. So, yeah, phases are a thing in in children, whether it's just them exploring things or their brain is still developing or... They just are confused or, you know, there's just a lot of reasons as to why we would conceptualize something as a face. There's also a possibility that she just wants attention from you. She misses you in all likelihood. She hasn't seen you in nine months because she's just with you in the summer. And by her saying this, you know, but, you know, make a decision for me. It could be her regressing, you know, adjusting to seeing you for the summer, regressing to an earlier time when she felt more secure with you. Maybe it's just a barometer sort of indication that she wants a connection with you. And if you increase that secure connection and attunement, maybe this behavior will diminish. But I don't know. I would consult with a child and or family therapist. All right. This next email is from listener R from Norway. They write, I was wondering if you could talk about the DDLG lifestyle. So just chiming in here, the DDLG lifestyle is daddy, dom, little girl lifestyle, which is a sexual or romantic relationship where there's a dominant male in the daddy figure, you know, the daddy dom, he's a, you know, the daddy dominant, and you have a woman playing the role of a young girl. Um, Some people in the daddy dom little girl lifestyle will only do it in private and when they are with friends they're they're not in the lifestyle whereas others it's all day long they will do it at work they'll do it with their friends it's it's you know how they identify essentially so uh reading this email i was wondering if you talk about the ddlg lifestyle i heard you say something in a plathville reaction video that it's not a healthy relationship when one of the people is too dependent and almost childlike. 
what if you genuinely want to live this way? Could that still cause problems in the future? I'm very curious and would love to hear more about this. End of email. Yeah, so the daddy-dom little girl lifestyle is fine. There's nothing wrong with it if two people are consenting to that. Even if it's all day long, it looks weird to the outside. Culturally, it has some trigger points of sexism or misogyny or abuse or something. But there are people who live the daddy-dom little girl lifestyle, and they're fine. They're, or more generally, just dom-submissive uh, lifestyles, regardless of gender. There are many people who are very into it um, and some people who are, you know, just kind of into it, if you will. And it's fine. There, there's nothing wrong with it. And it's not the same thing when I'm talking about people uh, being over functioning, under functioning or, you know, dependent uh, to someone who's dominant. Uh, that's a uh, the reason why it is a problem is by its definition, it is either harmful and or not meeting the needs of the individual. So when you are in your daddy, dom, little girl lifestyle, uh, listener are from Norway, you have to um, evaluate each individual's needs. Are they being met um, for the little girl person who is acting like a child? It's possible that it could be a manifestation of their dependent personality. People with dependent personality, they want to depend on other people on the outside, but on the inside, they don't really want to depend on other people. They want to be independent. They want to feel competent. They want to feel like they are capable of doing things on their own. They're just so terrified and so convinced that there's something wrong with them that they don't attempt it. So to the dependent personality individual, they will be very childlike and very underfunctioning, but they're not happy on the inside. In fact, they're, they can often be quite upset, suicidal at times. And also they can be very angry. So if you are in a daddy, Dom, little girl lifestyle, the, the little girl person could be a dependent personality disordered individual because it would fit with that. But it could also just be someone who doesn't have a personality disorder like dependency and is just really into what it feels like to be a little girl and to have a dominant daddy, dominant partner. And uh, so you'd really just have to ask them, are you getting your needs met? Do you feel like you're fulfilled? Do you feel like you're full? Because if you went to the little girl person and you said, um, are you happy? They might say, well, I'm if, if they suffered from independent personality, they might say something like, well, I feel like this is right for me. And you might say, well, are you happy? Do you feel balanced? Do you feel like you're living the full, uh, the fullest of your life. A lot of people with dependent personality disorder say, no, I, I, I just, I, I don't feel that way because I would like to be more independent, but I just don't think I'm capable of it. And the, 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 and the caveat to that is that when you ask dependent people prior to them becoming aware of their dependency, they're often in denial of their dependency. They're often 
quite embarrassed and ashamed. And so they will avoid, they're very good at avoiding the conversation. Not always, but so you could go to someone with dependent personality disorder and say like, do you feel fulfilled? They might kind of detect that this is getting close because if you call them out, even if you are being kind about their dependent personality traits, it's so threatening to them because what it, by implication, there's something wrong with them. And by implication, their whoever is in dominance over their life shouldn't be doing that and thus will go away. So if you come to someone who, you know, they're 35 years old and they still live with their parents and they think that they're worthless and they can't do anything on their own and you come to them and you say, um, do you feel fulfilled? They might detect, oh, crap. If we get into a conversation that indicates that there's something wrong with me and my relationship with my parents, then it threatens that and I'll be alone and I can't handle that. You know, so uh, they can either uh, be in denial consciously or unconsciously for that reason. Anyway, so the point is, is the daddy dom little girl or, you know, dominant submissive relationships uh, could be playing into pathologies from both sides and m- could not be. It just, it just, you just don't know unless you would ask the individuals. It's like saying is marriage in general, or, you know, being in a couple relationship, is it pathological or not? Well, you can't know that unless you actually, you know, assess the individual. The other side of it, the, the daddy dom or the dom uh, part of that um, duo can also have problems, right? The the dom person uh, could, uh, you could see a psychopathic or an antisocial person being uh, being attracted. That may be, you could see someone who was an overfunctioner, a narcissistic person being uh, attracted to that role. But you could also see people who are just into it. We tend to pathologize sex things that don't, um, that aren't common or commonly talked about. And uh, you just have to look in movies to see examples of this. So uh, um, I definitely don't want to play into that uh, ignorant trope of pathologizing doms or or submissives. Um, So that's what I'll say about that. All right. Next email. Anonymous patron, he writes and says, is it possible to have a dependent personality disorder and develop a coping mechanism through narcissistic personality disorder? After listening to your podcast, I suspect my wife has this kind of combination of dependent and narcissistic. She has real difficulties doing anything by herself or making her own choice for even the most basic of things, but was a perfect student in school, first in class, even at the university. Now, after we've got a child for six months, her behavior has changed dramatically. She commands me and insults me. One time she spit in my coffee, left the room, came back after two minutes and demanded I calm her down because she can't sleep because of me making her angry. That was after our first therapy appointment. She has a twin sister who also most likely is on the narcissistic spectrum. Could this seemingly opposite disorder somehow develop between dependency and narcissistic? And do they have any experience and do you have any experience on how to improve such a condition? End of email. Yeah, well, first off, it's hard for me to tell from your email, of course, but I will say that generally speaking, yes, you can absolutely have both conditions uh, and they're not opposite. Uh, Dependent personality and narcissistic personality. There are... 
opposing elements of it, kind of, but uh, they're not opposite. Uh, it, they might seem opposite to people who aren't experienced with it, but dependent personality and narcissistic personality, borderline for that matter, histrionic, uh, these kinds of uh, personality disorders to me are all kind of in a very similar category. But anyway, now there is some opposing aspects, like often we will conceptualize um, dependent personality disorder, narcissistic histrionic, or sorry, borderline dependent histrionic as working models of bad self and good other, right? I am bad. Other people are good. And when you're dependent, of course, it makes total sense that that would be the working models that I can't do things on my own. There's something wrong with me. And other people are the only source of strength. I need to seek other people. Whereas with narcissistic, it's the opposite, right? The good self and bad other. But, but remember that the good self developed by narcissistic personality disorder is only a facade. The person with narcissistic personality disorder, they have a, uh, like a straw man, if you will, of that, of working model of self that is good. They definitely think other people are bad, but they also think, think themselves are bad, but it, they cover that up with this grandiose fantasy of the self that is good, but they actually don't believe they're good. If narcissistic people truly believed that they were good people and that they were okay, they would stop trying to get narcissistic supply. That That's the people without narcissistic personality disorder. That's what, that's what they're like. They believe that they're basically good and people with narcissistic personality disorder do not. And that's why they compensate by uh, constantly seeking narcissistic supply, often by stomping on other people and putting them down. Um, so, uh, at essence, narcissistic personality disorder has a working model of self that is bad. I haven't always described it as that way. And side note, maybe some of you have noticed <laughs> this, that my conceptualization of various things changes over the years. I've been doing this podcast for 13 plus years. And sometimes I worry, like, especially when I start playing reruns that it's going to be revealed that, wait, Kirk is contradicting himself. And I'm sure that happens a lot, but part of it is I keep evolving in terms of my understanding. And a lot of it has to do with more, more examples that I come across in my work and also just in life that further refine these concepts. But anyway, uh, so uh, both dependent and narcissistic at its core core have a self that is bad. So they don't really oppose each other in that way. Um, and by the way, you mentioned, so this is your wife, of course, it's, and it's hard to diagnose one's wife, especially when you're in a conflict with them, but, uh, and to necessarily be able to bank on your perceptions being unbiased, but, uh, you're saying that, uh, she, you know, you're saying, see, she is real difficult doing anything by herself. Um, but she was a perfect student in school. So people with dependent, I don't know how you got this idea, but the people with dependent personality disorder absolutely can be good in school. And in, in fact, sometimes they're very good in school because they're being told what to do. Dependent personality disordered individuals, not always, but they will sometimes seek and really thrive in 
venues of authority for obvious reasons, right? And school is a you know very strong. If you if you get into it as a student, you can really thrive within the authority. You know, if you just hand over your entire personality to the authority figures and say, "What do I do? Tell me what to do." And you know, you happen to be a little bit studious, then you can become like one of the best students in the entire world because your entire uh, personality is oriented towards your teachers and your superiors. So, um, so there's that. Uh, so, but maybe you were confusing, you know, the schema of I'm incompetent because that's what dependent personality disordered individuals feel. They feel incompetent. Um, that they that they actually are incompetent, and that's actually not true. People with dependent personality disorder can be extremely competent, but they believe they're incompetent, and they're constantly trying to prove to others that they can, uh, you know, do good by others. You know, it's it's this stuck position of every child goes through this um, a lot when child's I don't know maybe four to seven. They're really concerned, not always, but they're often really concerned about, look at me, I can do this. I can run fast. I can jump off this thing. I can do math problems. I can, I can play with this thing. I can throw the ball through this thing. They're, and they really want to feel competent, and they really want you to see them as competent. And uh, you could see adults as kind of like stuck in that place, right? Uh when you see a six-year-old who's like looking at you, just being like, validate my competence essentially is what they're doing. Uh, you just think, well, they're six. What are you going to do? But when they're 35 and you have someone constantly saying, validate my competence, you're like, will you like just be competent on your own, please, for a while? You know, that that's what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that. But of course, it's not their fault. But um, now. You, anonymous patron, are saying that she has narcissistic personality disorder. But I'm wondering, based on your description, if you're listening to the Internet's version of narcissism in that the Internet, I think, believes that narcissism equals unreasonable anger and abuse. Uh, you know, you're saying uh, she's she's definitely dependent because she has difficulty doing anything by herself or making even the basic even basic choices on our own. So that's a, you know, it's pretty hallmark, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, um, personality trait of dependency. But then you go on to explain how she gets really angry at you and she'll spit in your coffee and, you know, and she gets really, ang you know, very demanding and you're like, Oh, she's narcissistic. I don't know. But from your description, it sounds like you're equating angry partner with narcissism. That That's not, that's not a, fair conceptualization narcissism is much you know more specific than that and anger can come from a lot of places including dependent personality disorder people with dependent personality disorder can be extremely angry in fact the most angry people i've probably ever met are people with dependent personality disorder this is something that people just don't understand and and it's a and I don't understand why dependent personality disorder isn't discussed very often. I, clinicians out there um, just do a, a and maybe I'm wrong, but take a mental inventory of how often you've heard people talk about in your field about dependent personality disorder. Um, I almost never hear. In fact, I, 
I'm wondering if I've ever heard another clinician or professor ever talk about dependent personality disorder, even though it's really common. And and once you understand it, you start seeing it in your clients, you know. Anyway, so people with dependent personality disorder can be so angry and not always because there's different shades of dependency. But one of the you know main shades of dependency is that they were angry as all children are particularly when they're being mistreated but they were made to feel like they could not express that anger and so they they have a at the age of 35 they have a lifetime of anger that they have not really expressed and when they explode or when they get vindictive or when they hate you they hate you because all of that displaced anger is is projected at you you know so that's not always the case, but, um, and there's different flavors of that anger. Sometimes it can be extremely overt, like spitting in your coffee, or it could be very covert, like cheating on you or breaking into your computer or slashing your tires and claiming it was a mugger or something. There's very passive aggressive ways in which dependent people can express their anger. And it's not their fault because they were mistreated growing up. But anyway, so if you're conceptualizing as dependency and you're like, well, she's so angry that she, you know, she also has narcissism, there's a chance. And of course, you're in therapy, so keep going to therapy. But there's a chance that the conceptualization is, is entirely within dependent personality disorder. Okay, so you're asking how to improve. Well, she needs to see that she has these schemas, essentially, you know, which drive her distortions, which drive her unreasonable behavior, which trigger you and cause you to trigger her and so on. So obviously you're a part of this equation and you're not talking about how you're contributing to it. Maybe you aren't, but, you know, you're in therapy. So keep going, keep it, keep exploring, keep trying to figure out your, both of your schemas and how they trigger each other. All right, let's take a break. We get back more emails. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. This next email is from anonymous patron. I'm going to summarize the beginning of this email. She described being in a family with a lot of fighting, particularly between her parents, like a lot of um, arguing and fighting between her parents. And then when her parents got divorced, she lived with her mom and her mom made her do things on her own. And her mom was also very pathologically independent and would force her and her siblings to 
act like adults, even though they weren't yet. And there seemingly was some emotional neglect uh, throughout her childhood. But anyway, so getting to her email here. I have a very avoidant personality when it comes to conflict and all relationships. I have a very hard time trying to figure out what I'm feeling. I have had occasional casual sex partners that I don't feel attached to. I once cheated. So just chime in here. Basically what the emailer is setting up is I feel avoidant, but I also feel dependent. And I think those are opposite. So how do those fit together? Okay. So I'm getting to the email back here. I have a very avoidant personality. Um, I have a very hard time trying to figure out what I'm feeling. I have had occasional casual sex partners. I once cheated on my partner and I didn't think it would hurt their feelings. A few years ago, I accidentally hurt someone I've known for a very long time by saying, I don't think that we are that close because I legitimately believed it it to be true. However, your view of the avoidant schema is I am good and the world is bad. That doesn't really fit with me. I feel very much like I am completely incompetent and inadequate in everything I do. I desperately want to tell I desperately want people to tell me how to live my life, but I have no way of reaching out to anyone. After graduation, I spent a year working a part-time dead-end job until someone suggested I get a master's degree, so I did that. Before that, I was trying to get into the Air Force because that seemed like the best way to just follow orders. I don't think I'm disorganized and I only ever avoid. I never try to latch on to anyone. These traits seem like two opposite people inside of me, but they are both always there. Have you seen something like this before? End of email. Yeah. So I'm glad you're bringing this up because when we apply personality disorders and attachment styles to human beings, I would say half the time they do not fit very neatly. That's why it's important to not categorize people so much as understand the schemas behind the categories. Because once you understand the schemas, then you understand how to apply them and it'll become less confusing. So um, let's go over the elements here. But, you know, it's a good good case example of like, well, I don't understand. You know, I, I clearly have dependent personality disorder traits because I feel completely incompetent and inadequate about everything. All right, so that's a hallmark of dependency. You also give some clear examples, almost like textbook examples of dependent personality disordered individuals. You say, someone suggested I get a master's, so I did that. And you also say that you were wanting to go into the military because you just wanted a place that would give you orders. Would you, know, you just wanted someone to tell you what to do. It wasn't like you wanted necessarily to be in the military. You just wanted to be in a venue where people would tell you what to do. So these are quintessential dependent personality disorder traits. If if I heard this, I would highly suspect that if I worked with you for, you know, a, a number of months, I would have a pretty, uh, it, it would be high likely that we would continue with the conceptualization of dependent personality disorder, um, feeling incompetent, feeling inadequate. And you say about everything you say, I, I, I feel very much like I am completely incompetent and inadequate in everything that I do. Again, that's just hallmark uh, dependency. And then seeking Air Force, getting a master's just because someone else told you to do that. Um, So, But then you present this other thing that seems to be in opposition to that. You say you have all these avoidant attachment traits, like hard 
It's hard for you to identify your feelings. You've had casual sex. You feel distant from others. You seemingly have impaired empathy. You never try to attach to anyone, you know, because, you know, the dependent personality disorder core is that you latch on to someone and say, you know, tell me what to do. And, and you're, you can be very clingy and often it's a person of authority. Sometimes it's a, it's a romantic partner, sometimes an abusive controlling romantic partner. Right. So you're saying, look, I never attached to anyone. So I, and I avoid relationships and I, I seem like cut off from my emotions and, and that sounds very much like avoidant, uh, attachment. So I get this a lot of times with borderline as well. People will say, I feel like I have borderline, but I also feel like I have avoidant attachment. And often what I will find is that the avoidance is a component of the dependency or de or a component of the borderline. So let's talk about your case. Of course, you would want to be assessed by a professional in person, and I would could never and would never diagnose from afar, but this would be a road to go down with a clinician in person. So people with dependent personality disorder definitely can develop avoidance. If you remember from my deep dive that's available to patrons only, I gave six different types. It's based on the Milan types, and I've modified them. There was the separation anxiety dependent, the enmeshed dependent, the childlike dependent, the compliant and eager dependent, the life avoidant dependent, and the passive aggressive de dependent. And in the case examples that I gave in the deep dive, I would usually give more than one type to individuals. You know, it's, it's usual that people will exhibit, you know, one or two or three different types, but it helps to identify these types because they can really look different from each other. You might even consider them to be different disorders. I don't. But anyway, so the number five is the life avoidant dependent. So this is someone who is, believes they're incompetent, but avoids situations that will cause them distress. And although it's not common, uh, your presentation, it, it is within that type that you um, and it makes total sense given your trajectory your early life clearly made you dependent because you have these ideas of incompetence and inadequacy probably developed early early in life maybe later in life hard to tell but you had this dependent streak in your in your life as a child but then your parents get divorced and your mom who's pathologically independent and forces you to be independent even though you're young and you're looking for guidance. So on the inside, you're dependent. You're like, mom, please, please, please tell me what to do. Please tell me what to do. But she's refusing to tell you what to do and forcing you to do things on your own. So as a dependent personality disordered individual, it's possible. I don't know. You would explore this with a clinician, but it's possible for someone in that position to develop a defense against their Def their dependency that is to avoid relationships because you know, it's possible for someone to be like please tell me what to do please and nothing is coming your way and so you just say screw it i'm going to avoid relationships as a way of coping with this constant 
desire for someone to tell me what to do, someone to be there for me, someone to hold me and make me feel safe. But it's not happening. And I'm so frustrated with this that I, I give up on it. But it that doesn't take away the dependency. It doesn't take away the desire for someone to be there. You've just potentially given up on that desire, which adds an, a, another layer to the disorder that has to be uh, you know, sifted through. So you have to sift through both the incompetent schemas, inadequacy schemas, and the schemas of avoiding other people because they are, they're going to hurt you. And it, it's possible that's also why you're avoiding your feelings, right? Um, so I don't know, but given what you said, if I were to work with you, I would pursue a primary diagnosis of dependency with an avoidant layer that's a defense to the dependency that was developed because your your mom was forcing you to avoid your own dependency. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. They write, I was wondering if you could speak about the experience of a parentified and overfunctioning child and how they operate in romantic relationships. I often had to be the emotional mature one in my family when everyone was flying off the handle and it was my job to stay calm and fix everything. I have a deep resentment over this and sometimes it spills into my romantic relationship. When my partner is trying to express larger emotions, it sometimes triggers me and I feel upset at her for not having more space for me, for not listening to me more, or for doing what I perceive to be walking over my needs. At the beginning of our relationship, I was okay with listening to her emotions, but now I feel my patience wearing down because I'm so resentful of the fact that I'm not being taken care of when she expresses herself. Sometimes I feel like this is justified, and sometimes I feel like I'm just being entitled. I don't like having this resentment. Is there any way to heal from it? I'm currently going to therapy. End of email. Yeah, I'm glad that you're going to therapy. Continue doing that. Uh, just some comments on what you're saying here is parentification equals resentment, by the way. Resentment is a hallmark of being an overfunctioning parentified child for obvious reasons. You're 13, and like a common scenario is there's a divorce or some kind of single parent or some kind of strife that the family's going through. And the oldest child or one of the children is required to take care of the younger children. Uh, or and or of the parents, right? And uh, but particularly if you're taking care of the younger children, you know that the the younger kids are getting off scot free while you have to do all the work. And you know, children are programmed to some extent to pay very close attention to fairness of treatment between them and their siblings. And so, when you're being forced to be responsible. And, and, you know, there's pros and cons, right? To the overfunctioner, you, you get to feel powerful. You get to feel special. You get to feel mature. You get to feel older than you are. But of course you have to give up your childhood. You have, you have all these responsibilities. You have this added anxiety. You get blamed for things that aren't really your fault. Um, but anyway, so the resentment is a hallmark of parentification for obvious reasons. And you talk about that. So the fact that you're resentful of your partner makes total sense. You've di you've displaced it onto your partner. You're truly resentful and angry at your parents for forcing you to become parentified and overfunctioning. Um, I'm guessing that as a child, you felt as though people were quote unquote walking over your needs, as you put it. 
And you displace that onto your partner, of course. And it's a total trigger, right? You have, I didn't read your whole email, but you were talking about how your partner can become over emotional. And when your partner becomes emotional, that totally resembles what your parents and your whole family was like, you know, just to get back to your description here is I often had to be the emotional mature one in my family when everyone was flying off the handle and it was my job to stay calm and fix everything. So in that moment, uh, you're being traumatized. And then currently in your relationship, as your partner is being emotional and you have to be the emotional mature one, it throws you back into that time where you were being abused essentially and you were being ignored and so it feels in any context now when your partner is needing you and depending on you and having an emotional episode it feels as though you're being ignored because that's what was happening to you when you were younger so it makes total sense that all of that would be triggered by a partner when they're having emotions and you're emotionally mature enough to recognize this. You're like, actually, I think there's something wrong with my perception here. I feel like I'm, I'm overly, um, reactive. Now you're in therapy. It can take a long time to recover from this, by the way, you know, parentification, overfunctioning. This can take a long time to sift through because essentially, and the, and the overfunctioners and the printified, children who become adults, they often will downplay their own needs because of course that's what their families did. And underneath that overfunctioning veneer can be just a lifetime of dependency that needs to be um, cared for. And so, you know, buckle up for years of therapy where you become um, childish and in, in a way and regressive, you know, you regress to a child emotional place while your therapist takes care of you while you are resentful of the fact that they are in power over you, uh, potentially while you are displacing neglect onto your therapist, you know, uh, this can be rough. So, you know, uh, depending on the situation, but I'm glad you're in therapy. The other thing I'll say is it's possible that your partner has a complementary schema, maybe even dependency. It's possible that when your partner is overly emotional and depending on you, that she might be doing, she might be overly depending on you because maybe that's how the two of you fit well together in terms of your schemas and your issues is you were the overfunctioner, she's the underfunctioner. And uh, so she might be, taking it far in her direction uh, and not taking care of you very often. You know, it wouldn't be uncommon for a parentified adult to pick someone that doesn't really notice other people's feelings very much. You know, overfunctioners are very good at choosing people who don't tend to see other people's needs um, because overfunctioners tend not to express their needs and they're terrified of their needs. And so, they often will uh, choose partners that just by default don't see their needs. Anyway, let's get to another email. All right. This next email is from listener Genevieve from Buffalo. She writes, how do you deal with an underfunctioner as a roommate? I know I tend to be a little bit of an overfunctioner, especially when I'm anxious, but my roommate is super lazy. 
He leaves the kitchen a mess. I recently had to deal with flies laying eggs and hatching in our indoor garbage can. But when I mentioned it, he didn't even acknowledge it and said that it wasn't a problem. I worry that he'll just see my anger as me being overly sensitive. I try to let him make his own mistakes, but then his mistakes only negatively impact me. I want to live in a place where I feel comfortable, but I don't want to clean up his messes. I don't know how to approach the situation in a way that won't just be futile or make me angrier. Is there even a way? LOL. End of email. Yeah. First off, I've been there before. I, in my 20s, lived with various roommates and, you know, just because of finances and had just so many problems. <laughs> and I'm sure I was a problem to, to many people. And it's just... I don't know if you're young, Genevieve, but if you are, it's one of those things. Uh, anyway, it, I, I feel your pain. <laughs> I, I, I always think of this one moment when I lived with a bunch of my friends. And, you know, these are cl- close friends, still are. And uh, we had this deal where we would rotate who did the dishes. And this was a bad system. Uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons was that it was bad was that you didn't have, there was no incentive to do the dishes other than the fact that, so, so the big, okay, let's go into this. Okay. So we figured we did this system. We said, okay, we'll rotate who does dishes. And the incentive is if you do it right away, then you only have to do a few dishes. So you don't have to wait until all the dishes are dirty. You could literally do the dishes 24 hours after they were done before and probably have like five things to clean and then you're done. And then it rotates through six other guys and it's a long time before it's your turn again. And I, I think we figured that if we had it this way, that they would just get done right away. And every day, a different dude would be cleaning the dishes. Well, of course, that's not what happened. And what happened was no one ever did the dishes and because when it was your turn and you put and you procrastinated and you're being lazy and you're putting it off, eventually every single plate and pot and silverware item was used and dirty and piled in the sink and next to the sink. And and you're looking at it going, I don't want to, that's every single utensil and plate and dinnerware we have in this entire house. I don't want to do today. And if I put it off another day, it doesn't matter because there's no more dishes. <laughs> and so if I do it today or I do it next week, it's the same amount of work. I'd rather do that next week. And, uh, and if, uh, and I think we just would end up eating off of like tin foil and stuff anyway. And, uh, flies would and mold, you know, all the gross things and don't even get me started on our bathrooms. And I was, you know, a full participant in that laziness. So anyway, I, I, as, as a roommate, Genevieve, I, I probably would have driven you nuts. Um, but anyway, um, to this day, me and my friends will still, you know, we'll see dishes and we'll just make this joke like, dishes because when someone would come home from work and it was his turn to do the dishes, all of us would go dishes (laughs) anyway, but you say that you're, you're a bit of an over functioner, especially when you're anxious and you're saying your roommate is lazy and you've tried to talk with him about doing things and you're recognizing that there's filth developing in their house and you're getting angry 
and you're trying to talk with him and he's just blowing you off and he's just like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. I had to read your whole email, but you, you gave a lot of examples of how he was just blowing you off and saying like, well, you, this is what it's like to live with people live with it. So you're labeling him as an underfunctioner, but I, I don't know if he's an underfunctioner. Uh, he doesn't want to do the chores as often as you do. That was another thing that I learned that we learned together <clears throat> was that the ideal situation is that you lived with people with what we call the same filth quotient, meaning that there's a threshold upon which you can't take it anymore. <laughs> you know, like some people have a filth quotient that is very low. Like for me today, I have a very low filth quotient. I'm, I'm cleaning all the time. I'm cleaning the bathrooms and the kitchen and my office. You know, I'm cleaning the garage. I'm cleaning all the time, every day, pretty much. It's just, you know, I see something, I clean it. I was not like that when I was younger. So if I lived with myself, you know, me at the age of 50, if I lived with my 25 year old self, I, w I would hate living with him. Was I an under functioner when I was 25? No. I wasn't, if anything, I was an over-functioner, but I was not an under-functioner. I just didn't care, <laughs> and I was immature, and I had never really lived in a house with peers that was very clean, and I, I was just like, look, uh, I don't mind it being dirty uh, like this. I don't want it to be totally dirty, but I don't, I don't want it to be as clean as you want it to be, and so that doesn't mean you win. And, and so that, and that was what we determined was if you lived with incompatible filth quotients, the person with the lowest threshold lost because they always would react sooner than the people with the higher threshold. And so, uh, because it's not like if you have a high threshold, you care if it's clean, but you have, if you have a low threshold, you care if it's dirty anyway. So your roommate is incompatible with you is maybe the most non-judgmental way of putting it. You're just not good roommates. If he lived with other people with a similar filth quotient as him, they'd probably get along fine. And if, and if you lived with people with similar filth quotients as you, then you'd probably get along with them and you wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't affect you. Um, but you do, you do get into your dynamic between the two of you. And that could be an overfunction or underfunctioner thing. Maybe you're labeling it that way. And, and it's, it's funny that you're trying to deal with it. You know, I don't know if you're, you know, listening to the podcast and trying to adjust your behavior, you know, you're like, okay, because uh, you know, the classic thing you're supposed to do as an overfunctioner is stop overfunctioning, And that'll help the underfunctioner to normal function. Uh, if you stop micromanaging, if you stop getting angry at them, then they'll feel more free to just do things, you know, because over-functioning, under-functioning fit together. And I, I see, you, you know, I try to make him make his own mistakes so he can learn from them. Well, that assumes that he sees them as mistakes, you know. If he has a high filth quotient, he doesn't see them as mistakes. He just sees them as enacting his filth quotient. Um, so uh, I don't know if you're in an over-functioning under-functioning dynamic. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out what that would look like in a roommate situation like this. Like, um, if somehow emotionally you were enmeshed enough such that he felt like you were uh, judging him 
and he was walking around feeling judged by you and really wanted you to stop judging him. It doesn't sound like that's the element. It sounds like you're upset and he just doesn't care. (laughs) And so I would say the more relevant road to go down perhaps is, okay, we have to like each other because it, it sounds like the two of you aren't really getting along. Maybe you don't even have a relationship. And uh, some people will do this, right? They will live with roommates that they just meet online or they met through friends. And, and if, if you don't have a close, and I've, I've actually rarely, this has happened. Most of the people I lived with in my twenties were really close, if not best friends of mine. But occasionally there was one time when I moved in with some friends of a friend and we, we were cordial, but not close. And it was, hard to there was a woman that was extremely the only person who had a higher filth quotient than i did was this woman i lived with in the 90s she was disgusting i mean she if you met her you'd think she was clean she seemed actually very clean a very fashionable woman you know dressed in really fashionable clothes very clean but around the house she was just disgusting and it shattered my stereotype of women to this day on that level anyway so um i don't know what situation you're in but the the key genevieve is to have a relationship because if you have a relationship with him that is um, built on mutual respect and liking each other then you can tell him how you feel you just be like so i you know I guess you don't really care about, um, and you know, you have to, cause if you're an, if you're an over-functioner Genevieve, you're going to tend to use judgmental language. So you want to avoid that. But so you go to him and say, so it seems like you don't really care. It's a way to put it is It seems like I care more about a certain level of cleanliness than you do. You know, you just want to word it as non-judgmental, but you have a different idea of what clean means than I do. And, and that's fine. Everyone has a different idea of that. Um, but it is really driving me nuts. I, I can't live in a house that is this dirty and, and you're okay with it, which is fine. And maybe we should have worked that out before we moved in together, but we're living together now. And you could really, really make my day if you could increase your cleaning a little bit. And I know that's a lot to ask, but can we work together on this? Because I, it's, I don't know if I can live with you anymore. And, and that's not your fault. Um, this is my issue. It's not your, you know, if you have that kind of talk, it's very non-over-functioning talk, right? Uh, you know, maybe there's something you can work out. I don't know. Let me know how it goes, though. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, Could my friend's divorce and general struggles over the past several years be a result of her enmeshed relationship with her mom? So uh, just summarizing the beginning of the email, she has a friend, anonymous patron has a friend, and grew up with her, and her parents were overprotective and enmeshed, particularly with, so she was very enmeshed with her mom, that they talk often, and when her friend pushed back against her mom, the mom would get really angry, and so on. Um, So a lot of evidence of enmeshment, overprotection uh, of her friend. About eight years ago, my friend met a guy and got married. 
but she wasn't happy. She felt like he was totally dependent on her to do all the work in the relationship, like financial planning, looking at houses, thinking about kids, etc. She often complained about him to her mom and shared essentially all of their relationship problems with her. She ended up cheating on him a few times with a work colleague. She finally decided to get a divorce, but now her enmeshment with her mom seems worse than ever. I have told her for years that she should find a therapist to help her with her relationship with her mom, but I'm beginning to think she will never realize how bad her enmeshment is. Can you speak a little on how mother-daughter enmeshed relationships might affect other relationships, both romantic and platonic, in adult daughter's life? I have read some sources that list effects of being enmeshed, such as attracting dependent romantic partners, uh, expressing covert aggression towards female friends, competition masked as friendship, poor sense of identity, lowered expectations of romantic needs being met, anger, distress, resentment towards men. These are all, by the way, spot on with my friend. Are they common traits of enmeshed people? If so, what might be a good way to end this cycle of repeated complaints about her mom that have dominated our friendship for years? Or should I just accept that unless she ever gets help? This is how she will always be. End of email. Right. So you have a friend who you have observed has an enmeshed relationship with her mom. Her mom has been overprotective in, in her life. And then your friend gets married, but seemingly matched up with someone with a complimentary uh, you know, trait of being dependent and maybe feels incompetent or depressed or something. And then she cheated on him. She was unsatisfied with his laziness, essentially. And she cheated on him and then they divorced. And now she, your friend is very enmeshed with her mom. And I didn't read your whole email, but uh, on the air, but you were talking about how she, your friend confides in. Uh, her mom a lot and you think that might have contributed to the breakup anyway um but yeah let's go through these um qualities criteria that uh you have identified or found online i'm guessing so the first one you say is you know are enmeshed people attracted to dependent partners um no not always for sure i mean enmeshed there's a lot of people who are products of enmeshment and uh, to say that they all are attracted to dependent people is is not true. Um, can they be? Absolutely. But there's a lot of different reasons for that. It it matches the idea of a relationship being very close. You know, when when what are the attractive qualities of a dependent person is that they really need you. And when someone needs you, it feels like love. And it is to some extent, you know, like with my wife, I need her to some extent. She needs me to some extent. But we don't, there's a limit to that, right? And in terms of we can depend on ourselves um, when we need to, but we can also depend on others when we need to do that as well. But um, one of the intoxicating things, it's kind of a version of love bombing sometimes, is you'll start dating a dependent person and they will just latch onto you and you'll just be like, whoa, like this person needs me you know but you won't you won't necessarily say this person needs me what you'll say is this person loves me you'll say this person's really into me this person wants to be with me and it can feel powerful as well as particularly if you have a need for that because the dependent person will do whatever you tell them to do um i mean within reason but it'll feel kind of that way like the dependent person on the surface and there are different types as i've been talking about 
but dependent partners, particularly in the beginning, can feel very malleable it can feel, and, and thus very safe. You can feel like, and again, you wouldn't say they're malleable. What you would say is they're, they're just very open and easygoing. You know, they, they'll do whatever, you know, they're up for anything kind of a thing. And, and so when you are uh, a product of an enmeshed trauma, you have attachment insecurity. And so when you meet someone that's dependent, it might be very seductive in that way because it feels more secure, but a dependent person can be seductive in that way to anybody, particularly people with attachment insecurity, not just those with enmeshment. The other quality that you say, you know, you've, you've read some sources that list effects is expressing covert aggression towards female friends. So this smells like something you would read online or in a Vogue magazine. <laughs> so I, I, would, I don't understand this. Expressing covert aggression towards female friends. I mean, that assumes that enmeshed people are female. I'm not sure. But yeah, for sure. Some enmeshed people can have deep anger that they will express passively. You know, as I was talking before about dependent people. You know, enmeshed people can sometimes be dependent, not always, of course, but um, and some enmeshed people, regardless of dependency, can have um, passive aggression. Um, but to phrase it like this, that enmeshed people will express covert aggression towards female friends. I, I don't know. That sounds a little fishy to me and definitely doesn't uh, feel like a universal <laughs> You say uh, competition masks as as friendship as another quality of enmeshed people. Again, not my experience. It smells like something you would read online in a bad article. <laughs> um, maybe, you know, maybe more of that hidden anger or jealousy. But like I said, there are a lot of people who are products of enmeshment. And to just say they all will use competition at, instead of, you know, they'll act like they're your friend, but in true truth, they're in competition with you. I, I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. It might feel that way. Anyway, um, poor sense of identity is another thing that you identified. And that is absolutely true. We, uh, you know, uh, that is a hallmark of any attachment security, but particularly enmeshment and um, parents who are overprotective is you as a child aren't allowed time to get to know who you are because you're constantly being invaded by someone else and thus do not have a sense of who you are. Don't have a sense of your own motivation. Don't have a sense of your own needs, your own emotions. And so absolutely, that's a big hallmark. Uh, you also say you read online or read somewhere, uh, lowered expectations of romantic needs being met. Yeah, absolutely. When not all enmeshed people, but certainly for some that, has you know that has to do with your lowered sense of identity you know you don't you're not in touch with your needs and so you don't notice when your partner is harming you and or you don't know it's okay to speak up for yourself and so um and or you've been modeled bad relationships and so you just have a low threshold for what seems acceptable to you uh, you also read anger, distrust, resentment towards men. Uh, again, this one smells like online silliness that all enmeshed people are c competitive with their female friends and resentment, resentment towards men. It's like uh, I've read articles like this and, um, you know, putting aside the sort of genderized aspects of this, I, I, I don't understand. Um, 
maybe, you know, uh, certainly for some, and it's not like enmeshment can't result, result for a heterosexual woman to have resentment towards men. But as a blanket statement, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And and what does that exactly mean? Just like all men, they just like are prejudiced against all men. I, I, that's definitely not my experience with people that come from enmeshed relationships. But anyway, uh, you say, what might be a good way to end this cycle of repeated complaints about her mom? So uh, chiming in here, what I'm hearing from you is that your friend who's enmeshed with her mom will often come to you and complain about her mom. And you've been saying you need to go to therapy and uh, and it, it you're saying it this it dominates your friendship for years that your friend is constantly complaining about her mom. And you're saying, you know, what's a good way I could end this cycle? And it's interesting the way you're phrasing it, which I think is good. You're saying, you know, how do I end the cycle of repeated complaints? So you're not trying to end the cycle of the enmeshment. You're trying to, like, protect yourself from the pathology. And then you're saying, or should I just accept that unless she ever gets help? This is the way it always will be. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to do. It it, it depends. And best case scenario, you could say something to her like, look, friend of mine, I love you. I, you know, I'll always be your friend. I always have been your friend. And I, f- I feel really bad about you and your mom, but it's frustrating to me to listen to you talk about your mom because, and you know, because I'll tell you sometimes that you should push back on your mom, but it doesn't seem like you actually do it or your mom is so rigid that she doesn't respond well to it, you know, and it hurts me to see you suffering this way. And I feel like there's an answer to it, which has to do with you actually taking control of your side of the relationship. And, but you never do it. And, and I, I'm watching, it's almost like I'm watching you self harm or something. And it's hard to watch. Uh, It's painful to me. And I don't know what to do because on one hand I care and I, I want to be there for you. But on the other hand, it's like, I, I don't know if I want to hear it anymore because it's been, I, I, I feel powerless, you know, and um, I, I, I would like you to do something about it. But if you don't, then I don't know if I want to hear about it anymore because you complain, but you don't ever do anything, you know? So, and I love you and I'll always be your friend. You know, maybe you could say something like that. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't imagine it working. It could work, you know, it could be a plant planting a seed for them to go to therapy. But, um, you know, other things you can do are just be differentiated. You know, you hear me talk about differentiation and this is a, a common conundrum for therapists that we will hear clients complain about things that are repetitive and it'll get frustrating to us. And so you have to recognize your feelings. And so your friend is complaining about enmeshment with her mom and just assess for yourself, like, okay, what am I feeling? I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling powerless. I'm, I'm feeling bad for my friend. I'm feeling angry at her mom. I'm feeling triangulated. Um, but that those are just feelings. These aren't, this isn't really an emergency. This isn't really my problem. This is my friend's problem. What does my friend want me to do? Well, I think my friend just wants to complain because I'm maybe the only person she can say this to. So I'll listen, but I'll kind of distance myself a little bit in my mind because if I get too close to this, it'll feel bad. So I'll listen, but I'm not going to get that involved. And I'm just going to kind of turn off half of my brain so I can be a good friend in this moment. But I'm, 
I'm not going to get wrapped up in this. I'm not going to become enmeshed into their enmeshment. You know, that's one way to cope with it, right? And, you know, if if that works and you can stay friends, then, you know, maybe that that's that's all that you can do. You can also do other things like your friend is complaining about your mom, her mom, and you just be like, yeah, you know, I had a problem. You just give your own example. You're like, I had a problem like that with my sister one time, and what I what I did was blank. And sometimes I can plant a seed as well, just giving someone who lacks a sense of identity an idea of what it is to have an identity. One of the ways you can help people who lack a lack of connection with themselves is to show them what it's like to have a self because then they can actually ask themselves wait how do i feel about this you know like your friends saying ah i was you know my mom was calling me all day long and so um i i I told her that you know i'm busy with work and stuff and you need to like calm down but you know my mom gave me the silent treatment for two days and so i had to call her back and i had to apologize even though i didn't want to and you're listening to this and you're getting frustrated. You feel powerless. You feel triangulated and feel undifferentiated. And so you say something like, yeah, if I were in your shoes, I would feel angry. I would feel mistreated. I would feel like the person's invading my life. I would feel like they're being unfair. I would feel like, you know, back off. I would feel like I'm being guilt tripped for something that I I didn't do anything wrong. And I I don't know, I would get angry and I would want to push back on that. Okay. So you're just saying how you would react, but you're modeling to them, maybe something that is sort of novel, this idea that one can feel anger, which enmeshed people often will, will suppress because it um, is not permitted in enmeshment. You cannot be angry at the enmeshment. You can't be angry at the person who's invading you because, um, you know, they'll, the person who's invading it will make sure that you aren't allowed to feel your anger, which is anyway, without going down that rabbit hole. And, and I've done this before. Um, I, I've found, uh, I, I never, I don't know if I was ever taught this, but I learned through experience, not only with clients, but with students who I'd be very close, you know, working with. And, would learn that, oh, uh, some people don't know what it's like to feel injustice and then to allow themselves to get angry. And that's this is an important aspect of humans and being able to meet our needs. You know, when we feel like we are being treated unfairly, we have to notice that one. And two, we have to allow ourselves to get angry, which three you know, motivates behavior. And in an enmeshed relationship where you don't have a sense of self, because you've always been enmeshed, you might not have any connection with that process. And so one of the ways that you can therapize people is to model it for others. And, and I, and I'm, yeah, I'm guessing a lot of you know this, but I'm very much in connection with injustice, uh, not only in the world, but to me in particular, <laughs> you know, when as a selfish narcissistic individual, when, when someone is treating me wrongly, like I know it because I feel it. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, and then I get angry and then I try and then I figure out what I'm, you know, anger motivates behavior. Anger is good. Anger instructs us like you got to do something about this do doesn't mean you punch someone in the face necessarily but 
it motivates you to do something, do something to find justice, to find fairness, to assert for yourself. And it's an important part of human functioning and harmony and everything, you know? Uh, so sometimes you have to model it for other people so that they can feel like, Oh, so I can, I can get angry. And, and, and sometimes, you know, what I would do is I would get angry for others. And then the others would say, I never knew I could get angry until you showed me until you were angry for me. You know, they'd say to me like you were angry for me. And then that unleashed my anger for the first time in my life. I didn't know that I could feel angry. And then you, you know, when I told you what happened, you felt the injustice, you felt the unfairness and you got real pissed. And, and I, I feel that now, you know, sometimes you need that. And so, Maybe you could do that for your friend. I don't know. But there's a good possibility that without a lot of therapy, your friend is just going to be where they're going to be. And the best thing you can do is just work on your own differentiation. All right. Well, that does it for that episode in which I read all the emails currently in the document having to do with dependency and overfunctioning. Let me know what you think. And tune in next time when we talk about some other topic. <laughs> Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do.